Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Pamela Adlon, creator and star of FX's Better Things, the voice of Bobby Hill, and more, got an early start in her career in show business. When she was about 12, she decided she wanted to act, and she didn't ask permission from her mom and dad, really. She just did it. She actually literally got the phone book, looked up an agent, made an appointment, and then a couple days later, there she was, standing in an office doing her first ever cold read. Yes, she had me read a Tide commercial, and um, she it was like one of those, like, this kid's a star. You know, like she like put her feet up on the desk and said, I want to sign her. And Was she smoking? I feel like she yeah, was. Probably. I feel, yeah, maybe. It's Bullseye. <laughs> this week, Pamela Adlon. Her show Better Things on FX is coming back for a third season, and she'll tell me all about that. She was also the voice of Bobby Hill on one of my favorite shows, King of the Hill, one of her best ever roles, a job she loved, in part because she could keep things fresh. And so there was one year where I said to, you know, Greg Daniels, can Bobby not say fruit pie, like, this whole season? Can we just not say fruit pie, (laughs) or... It's a big ask. (laughs) Yeah, or carrot top. Then James Acaster. He's an up-and-coming British stand-up. But what did he do before he took up comedy? Of course, he had a band. I thought I was going to become one of the most influential musicians of all time. That's what I genuinely believed. Uh, and, you know, embarrassing to say that now. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Pamela Adlon. Pamela actually started acting in her early teens with a very juicy role in the musical Grease 2. She played one of the pink ladies, Dolores. But she really established her career as a voice actor. Over the last few decades, Pamela has had roles on Rugrats, Bobby's World, and my personal favorite, King of the Hill. She played Bobby Hill. Looking for a plant? Which one of these sticks is going to turn into roses? That one? Maybe. I don't know. I just got transferred from fabrics. It says roses. Yeah, I told you. Okay, the tag says they need food and water and sun and dirt and love. Can I substitute extra love for sun? I kind of have to hide these in my bedroom closet. In the last few years, Pamela has been appearing in front of the camera more. She was one of the stars of Californication, and she was a regular on Louie. These days, she has her own show. It's called Better Things. She co-created and stars in it. Pamela plays Sam, a single mom and a working actor living in L.A. She isn't, like, starving, but neither is she super famous. She dates, but that isn't the center of the show or her life. It's an honest, funny show, and it talks about parenting in a very real way. Here's a little bit from Better Things' second season. In this scene, Sam is on a date with a man she's been seeing for a few weeks. This is a guy she's slept with but doesn't particularly enjoy spending time with. He senses Sam's disinterest, and he confronts her about it, telling her, All I ask for is basic consideration. 
Sam lets him know she thinks he's a needy guy who requires too much attention, and he calls her mean. And this is where the confrontation goes from there. Why does everybody have to be so careful all the time with a man's feelings? Ooh, don't hurt the man. His feelings are so important. You guys are supposed to be tough. You're such The second a woman is a tiny bit mean to a man, or even just a tiny bit honest, she's a Welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, Your father was a TV writer and producer. Yes. Um, But I I get the impression that maybe when you were a kid, he had um, mixed success. Yeah, he was... um... He had his finger in a whole bunch of things, you know, because he started out um, just being a writer. He went to BU School of Communications and then he was trying to get by and he was writing, you know, dime store novels and like little softcore porn, as I've talked about, comic books. Have you ever read any of your father's softcore porn? Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yes. I've read Superdoll. Uh huh. <laughs> sure. Yes. Um, and <laughs> well, it's probably his best known work. Yeah, I mean, you guys. And he wrote under pseudonyms because there was kind of like a, we don't like Jews kind of mentality in the world, which is so weird because nobody has that now. <laughs> anyway, so then um, he started writing and producing for television, and um, it, he was always struggling. I just remember seeing my dad like, you know, in whatever kind of makeshift office situation he would have with the football game on and trying to write. And and towards the end of his life, he had a partner, Phil Margot, who was one of the original tokens, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, and they were writing partners. And um, and so I know that when he turned 50, it was a difficult time for him because there was a lot of ageism. But, um, yeah, he struggled. He really did. How old were you when that happened? When? When things sort of went dry for your dad. Yeah. um, I was probably a teenager. Yeah, I think so, because I was in my 20s when he passed away, and he was 60. Were you already working then? I mean, as an actress? Yes. I I started working uh, when I was quite young, um, probably like around 12. Why? I wanted to. I I really wanted to. I didn't want to go to school, and um, we had. <laughs> it's amazing to think that uh, like I didn't want to go to school either. <laughs> I know. Maybe I could just act or be an electrician. Like, I just figured it was that or the garment factory. <laughs> I know. You know. It actually. We came to California um, to visit, uh, and I met. A kid actor and I saw like her composite like headshots and everything and that she talked to me about having an agent I was like I want that that's so interesting you know and I'd grown up on sound stages and on my dad's shows so I had the bug is a composite headshot the one where in one you're wearing a fireman hat and yeah throwing a frisbee <laughs> hand on your face goofy hat yeah <laughs> Totally. And you're like, I, I've lived all of this. Yes. From Throwing goofy hat to hand on face. Totally. Yes. I got to find that. It's got to be. I I have to locate that. 
Uh, how did you get into it? I mean, having a father who knew how show business worked, I mean, that's an important first step in kind of being physically here. You know, I called up the woman who was on that girl's headshot. You called? Yeah. Is this before or after you told your parents that this was your desire? Before. I I called her. Her name was Beverly Hecht, and I opened up the phone book, and I called, and I made an appointment, and I sat my parents down, and I said, I made an appointment with an agent, and I would like to go, and they were supportive. They were like, okay, it's not all, you know, rainbows and unicorns and... So they were down, and my mom, you know, schlepped me around and took me to stuff. So what, did you have to audition in the office? Yes, she had me read a Tide commercial. And um, she, it was like one of those, like, this kid's a star. You know, like, she, like, put her feet up on the desk and said, I want to sign her. And Was she smoking? I feel like she yeah, was. probably. I feel, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm picturing a giant cigar, by Me the way. Too. Like an absurdly large cigar. Me too. <laughs> and going like... Yeah. The kid's a star. <laughs> <laughs> Calling a secretary in. Exactly. Margie, come in here. Look at this kid. Read the Tide commercial again. Let's go. Come on, Pammy. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of work did you get at first? I did a Kool-Aid commercial where I was the sepia-toned version of the star, like, who was like, when I was a little girl, and it would go, and I had, like, the long braids, and, you know, and and then I did a commercial for Mexican pudding that wasn't approved by the FDA, and I wore the dress that I wore to my brother's bar mitzvah. (laughs) Wait, does pudding require (laughs) FDA approval? I think so. (laughs) Was this a drug delivery system of some kind? No, but it's food and drug, yeah. (laughs) Wasn't approved. So we did it in Spanish. Que sabroso, muy cremoso, es un postre especial. (laughs) I don't... I did a commercial for a pimento spread. I don't even... Jesse, this is so good. This is like therapy. You're taking me back. I mean, it it is a very odd thing to be doing as a teenager, even as an Angelino. Like, even... I I think even in Los Angeles, where there are show business people around, um, it's still kind of like a crazy thing to be like, oh, yeah, on Friday, I'm not going to be in school. Yeah. That was the goal. The goal, the goal was no school. The goal was no school because it was like um, when I got, you know, into high school, I went to Beverly Hills High School for, for ninth grade and it was brutal for me. In I what just, way? I couldn't find my, my place, you know, and um, I this was Beverly Hills in the 80s, in the early 80s. That was like. It was hard in these streets. Like, it was just, like, girls looking at me. And I was wearing my brother's hand-me-downs. Like, I wasn't a sparkly, you know, Beverly Hills piece of candy. And so the goal was Maybe to... also, I mean, this is probably a little different for guys and girls, but, like, yeah. you're also really small. Yeah. And you must have been particularly small when you were 14. Well, I was... Um, I didn't feel small as much as I felt like... I wasn't like, uh, you know, like the other girls, you know, and so I remember like sneers and like nice shirt. Like I would try, like I would wear cut t-shirts and like my brother's hand-me-downs and things like that. But 
Um, then, was it like everybody was wearing like like uh, Lacoste? That's what I was about to say. Lacoste polo shirts. I was sincerely. I've about never to say owned that. one in my life, and one like, of my. I'm best... picturing like white jeans a lot too. Yeah, it just wasn't happening for me. But um, and then I got my first movie, which was Grease Two, and so I was out of school for quite a long time and then I got into a car accident right at the end of filming and so I was like bedridden for a couple of months and um so like at the end of Grease 2 everybody's like jumping off this mattress in front of Rydell and it's supposed to be me and Leaf Green um but I'm not there because I (laughs) went through a windshield when I was um being driven to set one day so um Anyway, I... I I do have a clip from Grease 2. You do? Oh my um God. yeah, Grease 2 of course is uh, the beloved sequel to Grease. Yes. So this is like um me and Maxwell. It has to be the skateboard. Yes. It, it. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> um this is them uh leaving the bowling alley where a big bowling song just happened. Okay. Grease 2's famous bowling anthem. Oh yeah. Let's bowl. Score I think tonight. it's called. Score tonight. Score tonight, yeah. I offer to be a pink lady mascot. It ain't the coolest job, but it's a start. Think they'd listen? Forget it. Pisses me off. Well, it's pretty late. I think I better walk you home. Oh, I don't need a babysitter. Okay. Well, why don't you think of it as a date? Okay. Well, why didn't you say so in the first place? Come on. You know, when I'm in the 12th grade... I know I'm going to be the head of the pink ladies. My pink ladies will rule the school. They'll be the best. We'll have the best-looking jackets. I was trying to put letters on this jacket, you know. It didn't work. It fell right off. It was really embarrassing because it happened in front of my sister, Paulette. I didn't mean for it to happen. Oh, my God, my voice. Oh, my God. After he says, well, why don't you think of it as a date, okay? And I say, why didn't you say so in the first place? All the rest of it was me ad-libbing. Pat Birch was like, just keep talking. And I was like, okay. But, um, wow. So funny to hear little little Pamela's voice. I mean, you must be very familiar with your voice since you have been a voiceover actor for so long. Mm. Like, I think a a lot of people, when they first hear their voice, it's really distressing because you usually hear it inside of your head. Yeah. And it resonates inside your head and sounds really nice. (laughs) Um, And then when you hear your actual voice, it's really upsetting. Like, maybe six months I've been comfortable listening to my own voice. I've been doing this since I was 19. Wow. Um, uh, Yeah, it must be really something to hear your voice as a, what what were you, maybe 15 or 16? Yeah, I was 14. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's so cute. I mean, I guess my balls dropped. Like, it's <laughs> <laughs> so crazy to hear that. Um, were you always uh, a little tough kid in these things? Um, yes, I was always, yes, I was, you know, I was the kid. <laughs> like a scrappy kid sister? Yeah, I was the scrappy. I was like, I robbed Edna's edibles on the Facts of Life, and I sold crack on the Bronx Zoo, and Ed Asner called me into the principal's office, and, you know, I robbed the dry cleaners on the Jeffersons, and in an arc on a show called Wise Guy with um, 
it was like this rock and roll arc with Tim Curry and um, Debbie Harry and Patty Darbinville and Paul Winfield and Glenn Fry. Um, Paul McCrane. What an odd list of I people. know. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like, all of those are remarkable people. They do Formative. not match. Yeah. Formative. <laughs> Formative as F. But, um, I mean, this is like, I, I guess looking back at all of those things, it's kind of uh, <laughs> hilarious. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Pamela Adlon, created and stars in the FX show, better things one of the things that happened is that um when you that you had a hard time transitioning from being a teenage kid sister in a thousand things Mm. to being an adult actress that's right yeah absolutely um i don't think i've really talked about that it's true it's um there there were some dry years and i just could not find my footing I couldn't find my face and like a way to appear as a person and stuff. And, you know, I was never um, uh, uh, kind of uh, a, a girl enough, a lady enough, pretty enough. Any, I just did not fit in anything. And once in a while, somebody would be like, I want Pam, like, I I want her. This is the way we want to go. And there would be dissenting voices going, uh-uh, we don't want that. And they would go in, uh, you know, a safer direction, you know, because, you know, I was always like spikier. And like, I remember doing this one Disney TV movie, <laughs> because I know you'll love this, because now I know your taste. It was a Disney movie with John Denver and Cindy Williams, and it was called The Leftovers, and they took a bunch of orphans in. <laughs> and I remember the woman who wrote the movie said to me, and I was a teenager, and she said, I was so happy to hear that you were playing Jesse, because you have such a damaged quality to you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like... Awesome. So happy I can help. <laughs> Hilarious. I'll never forget that. I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you. I I have to say that uh, Bobby Hill, who you played for, I think, like a dozen years, 12, 13 years yeah. um, on King of the Hill, the Fox show, uh, is one of my favorite TV characters of all time. Wow. Like sincerely top 10, maybe wow. higher. Um, I think that's all. I think that's true for a lot of um, a lot of comedy people, um, uh, especially my age. Like it, it is something in which you recognize your own childhood through his s- s- sad desperation yeah. and, and, and and core sweetness. Yes, but terrifying desperation. It's such an indelible character, I think, because um, you know there there are not a lot of boys on TV who are sad and have feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think, not a lot of boys that like uh, people who want to become performers relate to. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there were parts of that character that that you realized you related to um, as, you know, having been a child performer yourself, having been such a performer that you like were making phone calls by yourself at age 12 to agents. Yes. You know, um, I remember, you know, uh, in the first place, that show really helped form me as a writer professionally. Um, 
because I was so impressed by the writing all the time. So it doesn't surprise me that it was uh, emotional for you or made you have feelings because it was a very touching show and the show had real moments and it had a lot of life and air in it. It wasn't a boom, 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 satisfying comedy beats buttons type of thing. And so I remember, you know, we did it for 13 seasons and I remember being very, um, you know, I became, you become the Bible of your character. And so there was one year where I said to, you know, Greg Daniels, um, can Bobby not say fruit pie like this whole season? Can we just not say fruit pie or... It's a big ask. (laughs) Yeah. Or carrot top or, you know what I mean, prop comic. Because I didn't want it to become too jokey. I wanted to keep him multidimensional and layered. And I just, I loved how... Um, it was always very odd to me because people, some people would say, well, Bobby Hill is gay. And I'm like, why are you saying that? Bobby is just an all around person and he's too young to proclaim anything. And so, um, a significant one to me was when he was choosing to be the Dalai Lama, like when they were asking him and it's like, you know, and then Bobby was like. He was getting all the girls and and then he was just being a very sad uh, boy and he was a disappointment to his dad and then his dad was proud of him. This is the way life is. And those guys just created a beautiful um, way to show a a modern young boy. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, to the extent that people perceived him as gay, it's just about the fact that it is so weird to see a young boy have feelings yes. other than like real like complicated like more than i'm sad my dog died right and now i want to be clear i was very sad when my dog I'm died i'm sorry but like uh, more sort of real complex figuring it out feelings that's not something like 11 year old boys are usually like punching people and that's going right ah! that's right you know what i mean why can't why can't a boy be navel gazing and existential and all of that kind of thing? Absolutely, yeah. I've um, often dreamed of having you on this program specifically so that I could play this clip from a season six episode of King of the Hill, where Bobby Hill is getting bullied at school. So he he signs up for a self defense class that turns out to be. Uh, an adult women's self-defense yes, class. Yes, And so, like, what you are about to hear is uh, the demo from the class, which is where, you know, it's the thing where, like, somebody is pretending to be a mugger and Bobby is being mugged and he's trying to <laughs> say his line that they've given him that you're supposed to yell yep. de- while you're defending yourself. Shut up and give me your purse! I don't know you! That's my purse! <laughs> Okay, I want everybody to try it. You first. See, I don't hate men. Give me your purse, now! That's my purse. Don't be afraid to shout it. That's my purse! Try it again. That's my purse! I don't know you! Oh my God! Do you know how many people have that tattooed on their bodies? How many Jesse? awesome people? <laughs> There's like a whole Bobby Hill. I don't know you. That's my purse. That's hilarious. Oh my God! 
so that was Ashley Gardner and Toby Huss in that clip. Amazing. I mean, what's so what's so beautiful about this character, and I think the reason that that. You know, I mean, obviously there's the absurdity of this little boy in a women's self-defense class, and that's really funny, and that's (laughs) great, right? But, like, a big part of what makes Bobby Hill work as a character and what makes him so compelling, at least for me, Mm -hmm. is that this is a kid who is in a place where difference is not necessarily celebrated. You know, his family loves him, but, like, he's different, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and he's, he's not different in, like, a crazy way. He's just regular different. Mm-hmm. And it is, a, you know, the shows that are about him, which are a, a lot of the episodes of the show, he's, he's at the emotional core, are about, like, a kid basically just accepting being themselves, in a, and that's like it, weirdly, that's what that scene is, mm-hmm. right? It's like him learning to assert himself in the world, and um, and it's such a it's such like a lovely it, it's such a lovely uh, emotional thing to have in a you know in a a family cartoon. Yes, it's so funny though. I mean, God, <laughs> it is really funny. Oh God, I don't know you. <laughs> We have even more with Pamela Adlon when we return from a quick break. She'll tell me why she worked so hard on her show Better Things to portray parenthood in real, relatable terms. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Showtime and the acclaimed series The Affair. This summer, the journey continues in this intimate relationship drama. A fresh start should mean a new beginning— But the past forces everyone to crash back together. Starring Dominic West, Ruth Wilson, Maura Tierney, and Joshua Jackson. Don't miss the new season of The Affair, premiering June 17th only on Showtime. To try a free month, go to Showtime.com and enter code BULLSEYE. Offer is for first-time subscribers only and expires July 15th. You never know who you'll run into in Fairhaven, the city under the bubble. Allison Becker. Eliza Skinner. Keith Powell. Mucus-drenched imp monsters. Rob Corddry. Christelle Alonzo. Judy Greer. Grotesquely possessive carnivorous plants. Justin McElroy. Travis McElroy. Griffin McElroy. Terrifying, malevolent, sentient beards. John Hodgman. Paul F. Tompkins. Lisa Loeb. Bubble, the sci-fi comedy from MaximumFun.org. Just open your podcast app and search for Bubble. How can a family keep its traumas from being passed down from generation to generation? The answer for one family may lie in the tiny Alaskan community where their ancestors have lived for centuries. I remember my uncle saying, here, take this twenty-two. Until you can shoot a ground squirrel through the eye, you can't hunt with us. A story about what we inherit on this week's Code Switch. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Pamela Adlon, is a voice actor with dozens of credits, including Bobby Hill on King of the Hill. She's created and stars on the FX show Better Things. Its second season, she directed every episode, wrapped up last year. Its third season is in production now. Let me play a scene from the first season of Better Things, which is my guest Pamela Adlon's show that just just finished its second season and is headed into its third in this scene, uh, she who, who Sam is a uh, is a single mom, and she's she's been fighting with a Mormon mom whose name is Trinity, whose daughter goes to her kid's school, and 
uh, Sam and her kids had gone to a service at Trinity's church. And in this scene, uh, Sam and Trinity are sitting on a bench in the playground, and Trinity kind of peevishly accuses Sam of having preconceived notions about what Mormons are supposed to be like. And this is Sam's response. The problem with you church people is that you like to pretend that isn't the way it is. And like, that's going to fix it. That's a teenager. And yeah, she's a mess. And I'm failing completely and i don't need god or jesus or you to tell me that and by the way you want to judge me how about you dumping your daughter on me on friday without any warning and then when i call you you don't say sorry or even acknowledge the bull passive aggressive power play you pulled on me okay Ooh. but you gotta hear her response I feel like one of the things that the show is about is that parenthood, and I imagine this is doubly true when you're a single parent, which you've been for 10 years or so, is like just a series of failures of various scales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like the number one thing about uh, parenthood is is like guilt you know you're it's constantly guilty like you know you could always be doing more and then when you do do more then your feelings get hurt and then you take things personally and the failures that you feel as a parent really are your own your own mishigas that you that you need to work out for yourself but in terms of the kids and when they become young adults they're resilient you know they're they're unbelievably resilient and it's like you can do the simplest things to show up for your kids and they know that you're there you don't have to shove yourself into their lives um unwanted you know I mean, some nights I'm in my kitchen cooking for all my daughters and they're all in their rooms with their doors shut and they're on their computers Um, and I'm cooking by myself in the kitchen, but they're all there and they know that I'm there. And if they want to come down and sometimes we all have dinner together and my mom, she actually does live next door and it's um, those moments that I cherish that I'm holding on to right now, you know, as my kids are growing up and getting older and finding their way in the world. But, oh, my God, we hold ourselves up to such a high standard. But it's like, unless you're like the biggest piece of in the world, I'm not naming names. You're fine. You're fine. I think my my wife does a parenting show and she and her co-host, Biz, the message that they give people that resonates, especially with mothers, that is like beyond like beyond my comprehension, the depth to which this resonates, mm-hmm. is you're doing a good job. People are so yeah. deep into their guilt and the mistakes they've made and the problems that they're facing and they've bear all that burden themselves. But I think mothers particularly often bear that burden, a a hugely disproportionate amount of that burden. And just the idea that if you're showing up and 
doing the work and your children haven't died because of your negligence, you're doing a good job. Yes, exactly. <laughs> is like I've seen people in tears yeah. talking to my wife and her co-host because just no one had ever like told them that. Well, you know, I mean, that's one of the reasons that um, I'm so, so grateful that I can make my show. You know what I mean? Because really, it's like I needed somebody around me when I was a new mom because I was one of the first people to have kids. And I just was constantly trying to measure up to these other moms. And finally, I was like, I don't need to look at anybody else. I don't need to look for people approving of my kids or my parenting. This is the way it is. And sometimes it takes a long time to find that place for yourself. I would constantly be like, I wonder what they're cooking their family for dinner. I wish I could look in everybody's lunch boxes and see. When I was at the gym, I used to be like, oh my God, look what that mom made snack. She cooks skewers with Persian <laughs> spices. Like I want to be able to do all of this. It'll eventually come. If you care, it will come. You got to go the super king. I mean, that's the secret. You go the super king. The Super King, they just have this wall of bags of Persian spices. Oh, really? You just grab one and put it on the chicken. It's Where not... is it? In Encino? No, it's uh, it's like... On, on it's Westwood? On San, it's on San Fernando. It's in East L.A. It's oh in Northeast God. Los Angeles. I'm going today. Yeah, the Super King. I they also have very that. good produce specials. I'm going to Super King. And a lot of kinds of yogurt. Oh, my God. So many kinds of Amazing. yogurt. Amazing. Um, but th- that does seem to be like... In a way, what you, what it feels like you're trying to do on Better Things is just acknowledge what being a parent is like. Yeah. Not in a judgmental way either way, but just be like, yeah, being a parent – like parenting is a very beautiful and yeah. great, warm thing. Because like the other part of it is you – know, I feel like in parenting media often, there's only kind of two categories. Yeah. One is Super mom. parenting is amazing. I'm aspirational, whatever. Yeah. And the other is like, F my kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oy. And there's just not a lot of stuff that's about like just like regular little painful stuff about parenting yeah. and, and also that 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 passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like everything else. Well, you know, I mean, it's just the way I am in my in in my life. Um, and what I've learned, you get these these rare, wonderful moments, and then there's really moments, and then there's there are f my kids moments, but then five minutes later, it's like, oh my god, I love my daughters. I, you know what I mean? It, it it's everything, and kids have it too. I learned by watching. You know, I grew up like wanting to be a member of the Waltons family and I wanted to be an eight is enough. And, um, I, you know, I saw Bonnie Franklin on one day at a time and I saw Esther roll in good times. And I saw, um, you know, Roseanne in the original Roseanne. And that made me laugh. Like I loved her and John Goodman and how they were just these two people who weren't they didn't look like two pieces of candy and they were sexy and funny and making everything work and they would joke around with their kids and they would 
on each other. And it was just, it, that was everything to me. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Pamela Adlon, is the showrunner and star of the show Better Things. She co-created the show with Louis C.K., who last year left the show after admitting to sexual misconduct in his stand-up career. Pamela told us that she didn't want to talk about C.K. I did ask her what it was like to continue her show with a new writing staff working in the aftermath and context of C.K.'s actions. You know, to be to to have to rebuild, which is something that I've had to do pretty much every year of my show, some kind of massive, like catastrophic event would happen. And somehow it was like trial by fire, like how I ended up directing all of season two and running my show and everything. So I've never uh, worked with more than one writer before. I've never had a writer's room, uh, certainly never run a writer's room, been in a writer's room. So now was the time. And I had to um, read people and vet people and figure out how to put people together and um, kind of mourn the loss of, uh, you know, this, this voice that was my sounding board for the better part of a decade and um, have to just start from scratch. And so um, I I can say that that is uh, one positive thing because it's been um, a really um, great experience for me to work with these other people and to, you know, really just kind of push forward. And um, it was literally like, I mean, the past six months have been uh, brutal. And, uh, you know, just somehow like everything cosmically, it's like legally and my life and all that. But, um, you know, everybody has to move on. You mentioned that you directed all these episodes for season two and you literally directed every episode for season two. Are you going to do that for season three? Yes. Why? I mean, like, not that I don't well, think you did a great job. It's just you're you're already on the show and You know, it's funny because it's like this is what I said, you know, I'm there anyway. I'm in every f-ing episode. So it's like why not? And the show is a very handmade show and it's uh you know, it's it's my 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 voice, my color, you know, my music, my vision. So it's it doesn't tax me anymore, you know, because I'm invested. So um, it's exhilarating. The work, uh, work saves you. Work saves you. I mean, it must be an extraordinary growth, too, to go through from, from can I be an actor, which is the natural state of being an actor, yeah. to the point where you can say, not only can I have my own show, I can direct my show. It's my show. Yeah, I never thought I, can I could in, ever do it. I, I can be in charge of hiring writers and the direction of the writing of yeah. the show. Yeah, it's it's I like I said trial by fire and it's just an unbelievable thing and like my dad at the end of his life he was helping people become writers and he was the person who said reinvent yourself. He was doing it all those years ago. So it's it's about 
keeping yourself relevant and reinventing yourself and keep yourself working and healthy and happy. Well, I love your work so much. I'm so grateful that you Thank came in you. to talk to me. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you for much. having me. You bet. Pamela Adlon. Her show, Better Things, wrapped up its second season late last year. Look for the third season to premiere later in 2018. When we come back from a break, British comedian James Acaster. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Squarespace. Destiny is calling. It says you need a new website. Easily create a website by yourself with the help of 24-7 award-winning customer support. Head to squarespace.com slash bullseye for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code bullseye to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Keep dreaming, but make it a reality with a website from Squarespace. Hey, this is John Roderick of America. I know that guy. He also made the theme song for My Brother, My Brother and Me. And you've teamed up with uh, your friend Adam and a uh, guy you also know, Ben Harrison. Hey, you're my friend. Uh, and we make a uh, war movie podcast called Friendly Fire. Now, you may be turned off by the premise right then and there, but you would be wrong. <laughs> well, it's because it's about so much more than war or war films. War movies are also a great window into filmmaking and the way our culture thinks of itself and other cultures think of themselves. So listen to Friendly Fire on MaximumFun.org every Friday or get it wherever you get podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My next guest is James Acaster. James is a stand-up comic from London. He's appeared on a bunch of TV shows over there, Mock the Week, Sounds Random, and more, shows that you would know if you lived in the U.K. Over here in the States, you might have seen him on uh, The Late Late Show with James Corden recently or on Conan. James A. Castor is observational and a little bit absurd, like maybe a more narrative Mitch Hedberg. He's very prolific as well. A couple months back, he put out his first-ever Netflix special. It's called James A. Castor Repertoire, and it is four hour-long live specials. It's very funny. Here's a little bit from it. I don't get hammered on my own, by the way. I don't get trashed. I just get tipsy. Tipsy is the best thing you can be in life, is tipsy. There's four things you can be in life. Sober, tipsy, drunk, hungover. Tipsy's the only one out of the four where you don't cry during it. (laughs) Should have warned you earlier, some of the jokes are sad. (laughs) Got to choose your soft drink when you're getting tipsy. Make sure every other drink is a soft drink. Sustain it, maintain it. I'm a Dr. Pepper man. Love Dr. Pepper, and I claim to understand it. I'm not that arrogant. Of course not. <laughs> what an enigma that drink is. I drink it every night. I could not tell you what flavour it is. And my... No idea. I'd have my mouth full of Dr. Pepper with all my other senses shut off. I'd be like, it tastes like a sexy battery. Are you happy? It tastes like a sexy battery. James Acaster, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Can I tell you, I feel like that 
Dr. Pepper humor is something that would play distinctly differently in America and in the UK. Yeah, I'd say so. I think, um, so like last year I came to the US for the first time to do some shows and uh, I was getting ready to film uh, the show that that clip's from. And uh, that Dr. Pepper routine... So I originally did it in a show four years ago and then just didn't do it for ages and resurrected it for this. And um, it did better in the UK than it used to because more people drink Dr Pepper now. But it did a lot better over here where uh, a lot of people... You know, it's been a part of the, the culture for a very long time, a I, rich part of the culture. I feel like maybe Americans going to see a British stand-up, they're just sitting there and they got 20 minutes of like hard work. You sure, know, like they're absolutely. sitting there, they're like, okay, I'm putting the pieces together, yeah. <laughs> I'm listening carefully, I got to understand a different yeah. accent, I got to, occasionally they might say Lori, yeah. uh, and then they get to a Dr. Pepper thing, it's like, oh, I'm home free, baby. Yeah, yeah. Dr. <laughs> Pepper humor? Yeah, sure. That's when, that's when the tweets start rolling in, and I get all the happy tweets. <laughs> um, there's a thing later on in one of the shows where I talk about lollipop men and lollipop women uh, back in the UK, and... You don't have those here. You have crossing guards here. Uh, so, like, that's what they are. And, uh, I was like, is it, does a lollipop mean – I was literally sitting there thinking, like, is a lollipop, is that what – is that what a popsicle is called in the UK? Yeah. I'm like trying to put the pieces together. Yeah, exactly. It's very confusing for people here uh, to Google it and find out, oh, it's a crossing guard. When you started doing comedy, were you trying to be, I mean, I don't know what the British equivalent is, but were you trying to be a classic Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld uh, observational comedian and like keep it light, relate to everyone? I think I discovered the stories that worked the best were the ones that honed in on small little details and uh, it was me getting obsessed with something tiny and going over and over it. There's this one story that was the first story I had that worked and it was about me holding a grudge against uh, the ticket man at Kettering train station in England uh, and how like how much I hated this man. I didn't realise that the reason the routine worked so well is because it was a long routine that was me focusing on this tiny little detail about this guy and, and really taking... Uh, offence to it and uh, what I thought I thought the routine worked because it was about uh, a kind of flaw in my personality and showing me in a bad light that I was bearing all these grudges for no reason and so I wrote loads of routines about what a scumbag I was uh, and none of them worked at all it was like you know just all the negative things about me and all the things I was ashamed of and none of those worked and then I kind of had to go right back to square one again and go okay it wasn't that so what was it and then eventually you figure out that it was the minutiae stuff I would have just thought that it was train stuff. Yeah, yeah. You, I, could have, I could have very easily become the train comic. I've just been doing that, the, the mid-level train gags. I feel like in the UK, there's a lot of room there for train comedy, especially. Well, I mean, I think... Here, we don't have a national rail service. Yes. You know, and Amtrak doesn't have the right-of-way, so they have to wait for freight trains. So it's very difficult to... Yeah. And I feel like in the UK... Well, yeah, but that's the thing, you see. We've all got train stories. Right. So what, what, especially when you're coming up, Every comic has a routine about that involves the trains because that's our lives. And so I think early on I was like, I can't be a comic who's all of my routines are about trains, hotels, and gigs that I've done. Right. Because then it's all just about the lifestyle of a comic. Right. I mean, it's like it's the, the classic cliched American comedian material is uh, airplane food. Sure. You know. Yeah. It's because they're always getting airplanes, you know. So, like, you kind of write about what you know what's going on with you oh, unless you start lying in your specials and say you're an undercover cop but what idiot would do that <laughs> what idiot would do that when you started stand-up comedy you had been in a couple of bands were you in those bands thinking that you were going to become 
a real life full time professional musician? I thought I was going to become one of the most influential musicians of all time. That's what I genuinely believed. Uh, and, uh, you know, embarrassing to say that now. But uh, at the time, I thought, I, I, I didn't necessarily think that that would happen, but I, I wanted that to happen. That's what the aim was, was to do this band, sound like nobody else has ever sounded, influence all who come after us. And that was kind of the aim. I was like, you know, late teens. I think at that age, if you're in a band, that's how you've got to feel about it. If you're 17 and in a band and your main thing is how do we get a record deal and how are we going to get like to the top of the charts and sell loads of records, then you've, you've, that's too early to kind of like resign yourself to that sort of cynicism when it comes to creating stuff. And I think, or if you're just in a Beatles cover band. Yeah, or something like yeah, that. Weddings yeah. and yeah. Yeah, well, there's a guy who, like, you know, my I was in a, I was in a band with one other guy. It was me and my friend Graham, and that was the whole band. And uh, his plumber was in a covers band. And, and, and when we were when we were gonna we we decided we were stopping the band. We were, we were I was 22 at this point. By the way, I just want to be clear. I'm not laughing at the prospect of a plumber being in the band. I'm yeah. laughing at the prospect of your friend having a plumber. Yeah, like yeah, a, sure. like he's got like oh, I, I got a guy. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah, a guy. yeah. Well, basically, his very house, musical. His house needed so much plumbing. This guy was there all the time. Like he was always <laughs> there, and they would talk about music. And Graham was like, "Yeah, we're writing these songs." And this guy was like, "Yeah, well, I'm learning other people's songs." And um, he never really understood. Because his covers band was playing to loads more people than us. They were getting booked for proper gigs where they were getting paid and doing functions and stuff. And we were just going around the country, not getting paid for gigs, playing to hardly anyone and writing our own music. And he was always like, I don't get why you're doing this. Like, it's so much easier doing what I'm doing. Why aren't you doing this? And uh, we'd always be like, because we want to make a difference and an impact. He's like, yeah, but no one does that. You're not going to do that. No one ever does that. <laughs> and uh, when, we, when we decided to split up, we also decided to record all of our songs, even though we were not continuing to be in a band anymore. And uh, we were going to go into the, a proper recording studio for a month and, and record. Just memorialize your failure? Yeah. And, just, like, we, 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 and we did it. We slept on the floor for a month for the studio and we recorded 17 songs and the album's over an hour long. And this guy was going, I don't understand why you're doing this. And we were like, we just really want to do it. We don't want to forget these songs. He was like, I don't understand. And I think one day we just kind of lost our temper with him. And like, well, if you wrote your own songs, maybe you'd understand. I was like really kind of like angrily at him. But um, it, was, it, was, it, it was a lot of passion went into the whole thing. And it was uncompromising. And I listened to it now. And I can see uh, plenty of reasons why it did not do what we wanted it to do. But I'm glad that I was in something where we just didn't listen to anyone else and just did whatever we wanted. I think that's important. I mean, were you making the kind of music that leads to a professional music career? I think it was potentially it could have been, but like it would have taken us a long time to really... We, we needed a proper singer who could sing. Uh-huh. And we didn't have that. And so <laughs> right, we, we so that's, had a, to, that's a big challenge. It's a huge thing. If you don't yeah. have a... I mean, it's hard to hit the charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Without... I mean, we, we basically both learned to sing for the project and we couldn't I definitely couldn't sing my singing teacher on the first lesson told me that she couldn't teach me that it was going to be impossible uh, <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> I mean, you know, and also we didn't um, write you know one vocal melody for the song and both sing it and stuff like that we both wrote our separate vocal lines for the song and just sang them at the same time so like we were both singing two lead parts over the top of one another for most of the songs um 
And it wasn't like we were doing a call and response or anything. It was just two separate songs that we were both singing over these uh, over these tracks. Did you literally, I read somewhere, and I couldn't quite tell if it was a joke, but I read somewhere that you decided to uh, skydive and do stand-up. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that was like when I, I mean, did, not at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was when I did my first ever gig. So, like, my first ever gig was when I was twenty-one, so still in the band. But um, I was, I'd, I'd had a car crash, and I got really uh, scared of dying and really obsessed with dying for a long time. And so I did a bunch of things that were like on a sort of bucket list of like I want to experience this. And one was a skydive. I did that, and then one was uh, try stand-up comedy, and I did like, a gig, and then I kind of did a gig. Once every like four months, uh, just for fun. What were the circumstances of the car crash? Uh, that one was I just passed my test, and then eight days later, I was driving home at late at night on some back roads, like some little twisty country roads, and went round a corner too fast in the dark. There was mud all over the road, which I was not aware of, and I just skidded, went off the road, and like just kind of pinballed against a hedge on the floor for a while, stopped. And then tried to drive home still, but what happened was I went into the road, the engine died, and then I was just sitting there. And then a car was coming really fast towards me, and a car was coming really fast behind me. And they both saw me at the last minute, tried to overtake me on the same side and hit into each other, and went into a ditch. And then they both got out, and everyone was fine. But I got, there was a point where my car was balancing on the, the two wheels on the right and it was like balancing and teetering, and it was either going to go on its roof, in which case, because I wasn't going fast enough, it wouldn't roll, and it was just going to smash, and I'd probably break my neck, or it was going to go onto four wheels, and it went onto four wheels. But I think, like, I had, like, a day of being really proud I'd had this crash and telling everyone about it, like I was cool. And then I remember it snowed that day. uh, uh, I was was at uh, college, and it snowed. I remember going to my friend Graham's car, the same Graham that I was in a band with, and I, I slipped while, while walking down a hill and landed on my back really hard. I remember people laughing at me. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty funny. And then I went to the car with Graham, and he, he hadn't, he'd left his lights on all day, so the battery was dead. So we had to call the, the, uh, the services to come out and start it again. And we were there for an hour laughing at like how unfortunate that was. And then he got me home, and my family had gone out for the evening, and it was just me on my own in this house. And it was really dark. I had a bit of a day of being a loser. And I remember looking into... I, was, I, was, I had my dinner on my own and I was washing up my plate and I saw my reflection and remembered balancing in that on the, those right two wheels. And then thought, oh, I could have died. And then actually for the... Like, properly realising what that would have meant. And then for six months, I was not OK. Like, I, as soon as I thought about that, for six months, I was just thinking all the time about that, about being dead and... Uh, and it was, yeah, it was really... But then it meant oh, I did a few good things and also <laughs> uh, not not as scared of, of death anymore. What did your mom and dad think about your non-university going, mm. uh, band failing, I'm going to become a stand-up comedian lifestyle? Well, the stand-up comedian part was the bit they were relieved about because it was their... There wasn't their idea, but they suggested it before I thought about doing it. So, like, they... Um, they always just let us do what we wanted. And like, my parents are like, my dad is a teacher. My mum uh, has been a teacher as well at that points in her career. And, um, you know, they're proper, you know, they're, they're proper uh, smart. Uh, they never kind of like, 
made us feel like we had to do the same as them. And uh, me, my brother and my sister. So, like, I think my dad... Because sick form is two years. So you get 16 and then you stay on sick form for two years. And I said, I'm just going to leave. Uh, you know, at, at the end of school, I was like, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to do music. And my dad was like, do one year of sick form. And if you don't like it, you can quit. But if, you know, if you feel like doing another year after that, you do that. And then you'll get, you know, you get your A-levels at the end as a good qualification. And uh, that was the deal that he made of me. And I, I did one year, and I thought, no, I don't like it, and I quit, and he was fine with it. And uh, nowadays, he says how he he couldn't believe it. Like, he didn't let on. He was very cool about it all, but he was like, I can't believe he's actually done this. Because, like, he thought I'd get to the end of one year and go, well, I may as well do another year, because I've done a year already. It wasn't hard. I'll do another one and get a qualification. And he was astounded that I actually went, there you go, did my part of the deal, not doing it anymore. And he didn't have anything to stand on. So he was like, okay, fine. And then when I was in the band, they were occasionally they'd vocalise a bit of concern. They'd be like, yeah, this music's a bit weird. I've been in more accessible bands before that. And so they were like, okay, this one's really tough and people aren't really going for it. And um, you were, know, you, were you living at home? I was living at home. And uh, I lived at home until I was 24, 25. Um, and they were, and they were like, yeah, I don't know what you're... Because I'd started doing stand-up. I'd done like a gig every four months or whatever. And my friends had, and I think my sister had come to see one of them as well. And they just seen me have good gigs because I didn't care about stand up. And so I'd often have good gigs before I started doing it properly. <laughs> and um, and then people were just telling my parents, he's really funny, he should be doing this. And so they were kind of suggesting to me, why don't you do stand up instead? Which is that's when you know you've really kind of. You've really wow. tested your parents if they're going, oh, what would be a more secure and safe path for you career-wise would be stand-up comedy. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I think they were quite relieved when I started doing it, which is it's not common. So in, in the United States, comics tend to kind of generate material on a rolling basis, mm. um, sometimes even on stage. Yes. Um and, you know, refine it to a really sharp point over a long period of time. Yeah. In the UK, comics, especially headlining comics, work almost in, the, in a reverse order, which is to say that there's a kind of comedy year that starts at the Edinburgh, comedy, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival um, with a show. And comics will take some time, you know, months maybe, to write their hour. Mm-hmm then perform it as a show uh, often a more a, a more theatrical experience you know more narrative more thematically based than american stand up your series of netflix specials is basically three of those years worth of material that mm-hmm. you had performed at edinburgh and toured the country and then a, a, another special that is like a mix of old stuff and new themes Mm -hmm. and that is like by far the most audacious set of stuff to go out as comedy specials that i am familiar with (laughs) (laughs) like was there ever a point where you were just like i'm just going to take the best 15 minutes from each of the last four years hours (laughs) or was there always the plan i'm presenting a set a group of things that go together. Yeah, it was always that plan. I, I think because I was on tour, I was watching a lot of YouTube before I went to bed. And one of the YouTube videos I discovered, so I like film theories and fan theories about films. 
And I really got into the Pixar theory, which is the theory that all the Pixar films are telling one story that, and they've been released at different times on the timeline, uh, but that it's this one story about an apocalypse and that's where all the Pixar films take place. And uh, I really love the Pixar theory. I really love people reading into it far too much and, you know, I know that the theory's not true, but what I like about it is people making it true themselves and it's like a fun, extra creative thing for the fans to do. And, um, and it was that thing where then I was doing these shows one after the other every night and I was noticing links between them anyway because they're all about crime. And so I was able to do little callbacks to the shows. And I think there was the first show I'm talking about being an undercover cop and I've infiltrated a gang. And the second show, there's a small routine where I mentioned that I used to be in a gang. And because they were a year apart originally, I never put those two things together. But when you're doing them one night after the other, and I, know, I noticed the second night, whenever I said I used to be in a gang, it would get a laugh, and it never really used to. And I was like, why is that getting a laugh now? I was like, oh, yeah, yesterday you were in a gang, so they think you're doing a callback. And so I started thinking about my own show in the Pixar theory terms, and going, well, if they can do it with some films they've not even written, these fans, I can do it with my own show. And originally, I was just going to have like a post-credits thing. I was going to do all three of the shows and have a post-credits thing where it said what happened to me after the... Because I figured out that that one show was actually a prequel. And I, and I wanted like a little, you know, this is what happened to James after this. You need like, you know, there's that guy who works for Marvel and he's in charge of the Marvel Universe as a Star Wars yeah. person too. Yes, like, you're basically trying to create a James Acaster cinematic universe. Yeah, that's what it turned into. And because the people who were filming the specials with me are really into that kind of stuff, they're my friends, they're, they're like an independent uh, company, production company. And when I told them about this, because they're, they're totally into fan, so they're like, okay, so there's this, this, and this. And, like, my tour manager as well is really into that kind of thing. So I was just talking to these people about it all the time. And uh, then I thought, I can't put it all... Like, if I put it all as a post-credits thing, it's actually going to go on for ages. It's going to be a really long load of writing explaining how the gap between one show and the other. And I thought, if I just do another show, that fills the gap. And I've got all this material that I've relearned anyway that's the right length of time. And I'll just apply a narrative to it that fills the gap and I'll do it like that. And But I'd already figured out a way that I could film it for no extra cost. So I said, yeah, I've figured out a way that I could do four shows instead of three, and it, and it all costs us the same amount of money and take the same amount of time. And they were like, fine, if you want to do that, then you can do it. And, uh, <laughs> and so, so then I had four. But yeah, that, it kind of like that part of the plan developed literally the year that we filmed them of me touring the shows. James St. Castor, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to know you. Thanks for having me, man. Stand-up comedian James Acaster. He has four specials, a mini-series of stand-up specials on Netflix. They're called James Acaster Repertoire. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. We saw our first remote-controlled speedboat of the spring season this year, whooshing around the lake in bright green, annoying birds, possibly also fish, maybe even turtles. Hard to say from our perspective. 
overlooking the park. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shana Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music, the music that you're hearing right now, is provided to us by DJ W, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. They and their record label Memphis Industries provided it to us. Our thanks to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, we have over 15 years' worth of interviews now available. You can find them all at MaximumFun.org. You can also find most of them in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast software or on the Bullseye page on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can also check out the Bullseye page on Facebook, where we share clips and highlights and ask for your ideas and share news of what's going on in the world and all that kind of cool stuff. The Outshot will be back next week. If you need something to fill the Outshot-shaped hole in your heart, Maximum Fun is launching a brand new audio sitcom this week that I am really, really proud of. Uh, We have been working so hard on this amazing show. It's called Bubble. It's like a sci-fi show about a city in a literal bubble that is surrounded by a nightmarish wasteland and it stars all kinds of cool people who you know from television and film and it is so hilarious and it's like a it's like a real fully produced non-ironic audio drama style comedy sound effects and original music and real actors and it's so great so uh, open your podcatcher and search for bubble and hit subscribe because it's probably the biggest thing we have ever done at MaximumFun.org, and I think it, it came out better than I could possibly tell you. It's so funny. It's called Bubble. Anyway, I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.